This is a Federal News Network podcast. When does a foreign cyber attack merit shooting back? It's a tough question, but one defense and civilian planners think about. For some perspective, I spoke with Chris Painter, the former State Department cyber diplomat, now president of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation. Chris, let's start with what you're doing now. So many people leave long careers in the federal government and then go right to the vendors. But you did something quite a different vector. So as you said, when I left the government, I'm I'm taking sort of the portfolio approach, which means I'm doing a variety of things, something you certainly couldn't do in government. And the main thing is running this nonprofit foundation that's based in the Netherlands, dedicated to the coordination of and promotion of cybersecurity capacity building, something that really countries around the world desperately need. And it has a lot of governments that are part of it, private sector, civil society, as we call it, and then academia, a real multi-stakeholder undertaking. Then I'm also doing – I'm working with the Think Tank, the Center for Strategic International Studies. I have a podcast there called Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Oh, there we go. Uh, And then I'm on a board of another nonprofit, the Center for Internet Security, which uh, works with the states and locals and also on election ISAC, what they call information sharing. And that idea of capacity building, I mean, we tend to, in the United States, deal with the European Union countries, one of which you're working out of in The Hague, and Great Britain and so forth, where the capacity, even though it's inadequate, apparently, is nevertheless vastly greater than it is in places like Africa and some of the Asian areas. So what does capacity look like around the world? Because in the sense that everyone is interconnected on the Internet, the weakest link is the weakest link. And that's absolutely right. And that's why the business case for capacity building for even developed countries like the U.S. is you need to help these other countries because, look, if you're a smart cyber attacker or a cyber criminal, you're going to route your attacks, your actions through countries who don't have good cybercrime laws, who don't have the capacity to investigate it because it makes it harder to find you. So Africa clearly is a big focus. We have a big Africa project we're doing right now. Also, our region in Latin America, working with the Organization of American States here and the Asian region too. So there's lots of countries who are just getting into this, who need this help because they love this idea of a digital economy and all the things they can get out of a digital economy in terms of growth. But at the same time, to do that, they need to have this base of strong cybersecurity so that people want to invest there and they can really profit and see the benefits of the digital part of the world coming forward. Interesting aside on the new economy, even now cryptocurrency turns out can be purloined at will by hackers to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. But apparently returned because it was hard to launder it, I understand. So, uh, but you know, it's an interesting issue. There's been a lot of issues around cryptocurrency in terms of how it's been used, especially for ransomware groups. But I think it's here to stay. So we have to see how we can work with cryptocurrency, how we can enforce some existing regulations that deal with it. I thought blockchain was supposed to be the panacea <laughs> to keep it secure forever. Well, there's a new buzzword every like four years or so. So, so now it's crypto. All right. And – I guess in some ways what you're doing is an extension of the cyber diplomacy that you did at your last stint in government at the State Department. Yeah, absolutely. I I was very lucky. I had a career in government that was about 28 years doing cyber, so back when no one cared about it to when they did care about it. And my last gig in the government for the last six and a half years I was in the government was I was our first dedicated cyber diplomat, and I was really the world's first cyber diplomat. And now there are 40 of them around the world, and both in our friendly countries and our frenemy countries. And that's important because one of the issues around this area is we need to elevate it from just being seen as this technical boutique issue to one that's a core issue of our national security, of our economic security, of human rights, and and ultimately of our diplomacy. So upping the game there was important. And it was able to build bridges with lots of other countries 
make progress on negotiating certain norms of behavior, rules of the road in cyberspace, and also work with other agencies in the government to try to combat the threats we're seeing every day. And that idea of frenemy is kind of really on the forefront nowadays, isn't it? Because thinking back to the Cold War, we had this rivalry with the USSR, but we did not have the economic interdependence that we have with China. And let's face it, Russia is like Japan. It can make a lot of noise, but it's a shrinking country population-wise. So ultimately, it's really not a world power. China, different story. And so what should the U.S. posture be, the federal government, vis-a-vis cyber and China and everything else? There's a lot in that question, but they seem to be having the upper hand now with respect to espionage. One of my former government colleagues put it this way. Russia's like the hurricane. China's like climate change. China's going to be there. They're very dedicated. They're very focused on this. And, and this is not a new issue for us. Back when I was in the government, one of the big issues, and it still is, is China theft of intellectual property that they would use to benefit their own businesses. So every country does intelligence gathering. They have from the beginning of time. They'll do it to the end of time. But this kind of targeted espionage that goes after commercial trade secrets and other things, it's the lifeblood of our economy. It's something we said should be off limits. And it took us a while. We got China. I used to run our China-U.S. dialogue and also help negotiate this agreement. It took us almost two years of pressure, but they agreed to it. And for a while, it worked. For about 18 months, it worked. There was a a lessening of this. But it's not that way now. And so China is going to continue to be a real challenge. Espionage is one issue, the theft of secrets. We're, of course, worried about more destructive operations like we've seen from the Russia ransomware groups and others. But the good thing about China is I think we have more levers than we do with Russia. We have the economic interdependence you talk about, but we can use that to our benefit. We can use things like potentially economic sanctions, pressure on their leadership, work with other countries around the world, as we did with the theft of intellectual property, Australia, UK, Germany, and others, to put pressure on China. So I I do think there's some trade space there going forward, but it's going to be a challenge, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. We're speaking with Chris Painter, former State Department cyber diplomat, now president of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation in The Hague. And is your sense that we hit them back? Are we spying on them, too, and purloining as much as we can of their intellectual property, at least in military, perhaps, affairs? Well, no. I mean, certainly, as I said before, every country does intelligence gathering. I mean, that, that's going to happen. And, of course, they do that for the national security to protect the people of their country. But the kind of theft that goes to trade secret theft, that kind of commercial theft, we don't do that to benefit our businesses. We don't spy on someone and give it and turn around and give it to, I don't know, name any company you want to in the U.S. We don't do that. We don't think any country should do that. We got an agreement from them both bilaterally and the G20 that should be done. So that, we think, should be off limits. But even some of the espionage we've seen recently, like the Microsoft Exchange hack got a lot of attention recently, that went a little beyond the pale, too, because even if that was espionage, it was done in such a reckless way that it left the victims open to exploitation by criminal groups, by ransomware groups. It was done in a way that caused a lot of second-order damage. So it's not that we have to sit still and say, oh, it's espionage, good on you. We shouldn't do that. We can still react. But when you have that kind of reckless espionage, that even takes it to another level, too, even if it's, as some people call it, just espionage. And that gets to a question I think the federal government hasn't really decided on what the best response is. But you were a federal prosecutor and you went after cyber crimes in that capacity. We should note you're a lawyer also. And then, Recovering. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's good. And then there is the cyber command military possibility of retaliation. And so the question is, when is it a civil affair strictly? When does the military intervene in cybersecurity? Some people have opined recently that 
you know, maybe it is time for military, especially when it affects critical infrastructure and suddenly there's economic fallout and the possibility of social unrest and so on. Yeah, look, I was amazed at how quickly cyber became a national and international priority. After Colonial Pipelines, I was part of a ransomware task force report, private sector report, 60 former government people, people who do insurance, people who do cybersecurity. We issued a report one week before Colonial Pipelines, and it took off. I mean, it, you know, you always worry about these reports becoming like shelfware. This thing took off, and rightly so. And then you saw this issue go from back burner to front of the line at the G7 summit, at the NATO summit, and the meeting with Putin. So that's all important. And you have to then think about all the tools you have. So you can't just say, don't do this. You know, if these are criminal groups operating in the territory of another country, they still have responsibility. They can't say, well, not us, so wash our hands of it. Clearly, if they do it, they have responsibility, but they bear a responsibility for these actors there. And so that's the message, I think, that President Biden delivered to President Putin. And then we have to look at all the tools we have both to change the behavior of the government that's providing a safe haven to them. So, you know, how do you get Putin to decide this is in his self-interest? Or getting a cut from them. Well, or you know, when I was a prosecutor and dealing with Russia, either the groups were operating under the control of the government or because of corruption, or in some cases, you know, just these freewheeling groups, but it was still in line with Putin's larger agenda to have disruption in the West. So as long as they weren't hacking Russian targets, they were good. So we have to change Putin's calculus, but also, as we look at our tool set, economic sanctions, diplomatic actions, criminal indictments, we also have to think about those military tools. Now, we have to think carefully about that, because if we use those to disrupt criminal groups, which is you know, something I think folks are considering, at least I think it's on the table generally, you know, we have to figure out what that means, what that means for the future, what the reaction is, what groups might use against us. So we have to take that all into account, but it has to be something that is least considered. And getting back to Russia and the idea that they are not necessarily the world power they posture to be. On the other hand, cyber capability is a great equalizer. So even the smallest nation can really badly harass the largest nation without having any intercontinental ballistic missiles or not having any air-to-ground missiles or anything of that sort. Yeah, it's something we call an asymmetric threat. And we've seen this play out with Iran, with North Korea, with Russia to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't require a lot of investment to have a powerful ability here. Now, to have a sustained impact, like to actually take down our infrastructure for some period of time, that requires a lot of sophistication and resources. So it's not simply you can have a criminal group go you know, instantly to doing these things. But you saw with Colonial Pipelines, they can have an effect and that it can potentially be devastating. And we're so dependent on these technologies. We're so vulnerable. We have to think about that side, too. How do we protect ourselves better? And what's your assessment of the Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity? It was long a little bit convoluted, but it did bring in the zero trust idea. It did seem to elevate, finally, pushing along the idea of information sharing intra-governmentally and between government and industry, which has been more latent than reality for the past 18 years. Yeah, look, I think it's not been that long. They've only been in office about six months, but I think they've made some real strides. One is that prioritization I talked about. Two, though, is this executive order. The thing I liked the best about that executive order was saying, and when the government procures things, we're going to insist on it meeting a certain standard you know, with software and other things and tools. That's a huge driver for the market. So even if you don't regulate and say you have to do this, 
which is still, I think, a live issue on Capitol Hill and others. By executive order, you can say, we're going to decide where we're going to purchase. And that, I think, is really important. The other thing I think is important is they filled the government with people who know what they're doing. You know, they've created this as a high-level issue at the National Security Council. This new cyber director, Chris Inglis, who's incredibly accomplished, and Ann Neuberger at the National Security Council. But even at the cabinet level, these people have dealt with this issue before. They dealt with it in the Obama administration, so they don't need to be spoon-fed. They actually, you know, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, Ali Mayorkas, Tony Blinken, and Biden himself. I mean, they've all dealt with these issues at the end of the last administration. So that's a good thing. So they have a leg up. And I think early days so far have shown that they really are taking it seriously. And that was borne out by Biden's message with the summit with uh, Putin. But then he's made speeches about this, including just recently. So it's still front of mind. You, know, you don't need the president involved every day, but having the president be a big advocate, that's a big thing. And how does that all get translated down into the day-to-day operations and, as you would put it, the capacity development yeah. of the bureaucracy itself? Well, I mean, first of all, if it's a presidential priority, that makes a difference. If it's a secretary or cabinet-level priority, that trickles down. But you also have to put your money where your mouth is. So Congress has been giving more funding to this. That's important. Structural things have happened at DHS, creating the cyber agency there that happened in the last administration. That's great. And filling that with the right people, which they've done with Jen Easterly, that's great. So people are policy to some extent. And I think there's a lot of people at that mid-level of the bureaucracy who want to do this, who felt that they didn't have the resources or tools to do this. I know my old gang over the State Department felt that way, that they really want this to be prioritized. And now you're seeing that. So I think, look, hiring is always a hard issue in the government, getting these talented people in. That's going to be a challenge. But there's a lot of people who are ready to go. And I've always had this more of a fantasy thought than actually reality, (laughs) that somewhere someone is going to come up with the code that revolutionizes everything. And suddenly we would wonder why we ever worried about cybersecurity. Just apply this. Yeah. Anything like that well, on, if, you know, on the I, horizon? Well, if you go to a, a cybersecurity conference, almost every company claims they've discovered that code. I think. Right. So, so, you know, and some are, are certainly have some good tools out there. Look, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I mean, that'd be great if that happened, right? You know, that would be movie-esque if that happened. But I think we have to understand that as we develop better capabilities to protect ourselves, the adversaries will get better in attacking our systems. I've seen that over my 30-year career. I've seen, you know, when we're dealing with some of the early cybercrime cases, their tradecraft has gotten much better. We've gotten better at fighting it, but their tradecraft has gotten better. So I think you're going to expect that cat and mouse game to continue. And I wish it were otherwise. You know, I certainly am fond of movies where hackers or computers are main characters. But even those movies, which are almost all dystopian, there's never the silver bullet that wins everything. Which gets us back to the original part of the discussion on currency. So nobody robs banks to get gold coins anymore or cash. But in the age of cryptocurrency, people have discovered ways to steal that too. Yeah, they have. It was interesting, this recent event, and who knows what the actual story is, but it appears they're returning it either because they were doing it on a lark, as they claim, or because it was just too hard to get rid of it and launder it. So we'll see. But you you do have criminals using these tools, and so you have to think about, well, how can you, with the expectation they're going to continue, enforce things we have now, like anti-money laundering and know your customer rules, and get other countries to work with us. So we've got to do that. Chris Painter, former State Department cyber diplomat, now president of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. 
Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was 
it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision.